Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We got to go to uh, our lesson tonight and we want to turn. Did I do, uh, I talked a little bit about irresistible grace. We did that last time, yeah? Okay, so what I want to move to is perseverance of the saints. This is the last of the tulip. Now, what my plans are is this. I wanted to briefly go over the tulip so you understand where Calvinists are coming from. Then I'm going to do some history of what, how it crept into the church through Augustine. And you got to understand the history on that. And then we'll pile drive right into the scriptures and start unpacking them in a more concentrated way. But we got to lay this foundation first so we understand the context that we're in. The last thing of the tulip of that Calvinists believe is the perseverance of the saints. Do not get this confused with eternal security. Perseverance of the saints is something entirely different than eternal security. Now, they're going to quote all these passages, and we agree with all these passages, that these passages teach that if you are saved, you will be saved all the way through the end, be resurrected and glorified and raptured. And so we call that eternally secure in the Messiah. But perseverance of the saints takes a different route. And here's how they take it. In perseverance of the saints, they say that the believer will persevere to the end, which is far different than saying the believer is eternally secure. When I say the believer is eternally secure, I'm allowing something in that definition. In their definition of perseverance of the saints, they're saying that the believer will always continually persevere to the day he dies. Is that a problem? So what do they mean by persevere? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. They will continue to mature and get more mature every year, every year, everything. They get more and more and more and more mature. They'll continue to grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. They will do good works. They will constantly be doing works and they'll be doing greater works than they were five years ago. And they will constantly do greater works and greater works as they go along in their walk with the Lord. So they're constantly maturing, constantly growing, constantly serving until the day they die. And let me make this point. They won't apostatize. They won't depart from the faith. They will not stay carnal. They will not be worldly. They will go all the way to maturity and dying on your deathbed and you've got minutes left. If you persevere, then you know you're saved. Bingo. You got it. And he said that at Dallas Theological Seminary. So MacArthur, which I champion for what he's doing fighting L.A. I, you know, I'm not going to throw the baby out of the bathwater. God bless him in fighting L.A. But in his Calvinism, he's only 98% sure that if he died, he would go to heaven. Why? Because of perseverance of the saints. He will prove to himself, to his death, whether or not he is saved by his perseverance. So in his mind, if he stops persevering, that means he's not saved. 
There's where the 2% come in in his definition that he's only 98% sure of being saved. So you tell me what the problem is with perseverance of the saints and that definition. And if that is what the scriptures teach, that you're going to get saved. And when you get saved, all your old habits are just going to magically disappear. Because you're going to be mature in Christ. And you have to believe that you're a new creation in Christ. All things are past. All things are new. You shouldn't have any struggle with anything. You shouldn't have any addictions. Because if you have an addiction, that means you haven't persevered. And if you're not persevering, that means you're not saved. And if you apostatize and get into false doctrine, which there are, I mean, dozens and dozens of warnings to Christians in the epistles be careful of false doctrine because you'll buy into it and you'll get sucked in and there's all kinds of warnings and admonitions by the Apostle Paul. You've been beguiled. What's turned you? Remember he told the Galatians, I don't know who's coming and talk to you, boys, but you're all messed up. If they were truly saved, how could they get messed up? Why did Paul, in most of his epistles, always write the letter for correction? He's correcting most of his letters. Yeah, he's greeting them and all that, but if you look at the heart of his letter, he's correcting in most of the letters. Why would you have to correct anyone that's saved and persevering? Why would he have to get in the Corinth church for being carnal and worldly? Why would he have to do that? So you see the problem that I'm trying to unearth? Perseverance of the saints is a man-made doctrine they're putting on the scriptures. They're misusing these texts, which talk about eternal security. But the scripture never, ever, ever guarantees that you will persevere. The scriptures only guarantee eternal life to those who believe. That's the guarantee. It never guarantees that a believer will continue to persevere. Are we admonished to persevere? Of course we are. But as you can see, there are some believers who don't persevere. There are believers who give up the fight. There are believers who don't endure suffering. They don't endure persecution. They run from it. They hide from it. There are those believers that get mad at God and twist off so bad they won't ever darken the door of a church again. Does it mean they're not saved? No, it just means they're not persevering anymore. So, is it possible that a believer can apostatize? Yes, I've seen it. Truly are saved. They get into some messed up thing and get into false doctrine, before you know it, they're over here. So what happens when they do that? The Calvinists say they're not a believer then. They never were a believer. If they apostatize, they never were a believer. But what does Scripture say about that person? Is he still a believer or she still a believer if they've apostatized? Yes. So what's the penalty for doing that? Apostatizing. You lose rewards. You lose temporal blessings and you lose eternal rewards. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation. What about a believer who doesn't persevere? What will happen to them? Same thing. Lose temporal blessings and lose eternal rewards. Will that believer be in heaven? Of course. But they will lose eternal rewards and temporal blessings. And then, if a believer doesn't persevere, they start losing certain things in their life. They introduce the death principle in their life. So you're either moving forward or you're actually moving backwards in your walk with the Lord. As you decide, I'm not going to grow anymore, 
you actually start retarding your growth and you actually move backwards and forget everything. And then you introduce the death principle because now you're in disobedience. Why would you be in disobedience for not persevering, not enduring? Why is this say, you know what? I'm good. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. That's all I need to know. And I'm going to set sail right here where I'm at. What's the problem with that? You're not allowed to do that. The commands are to grow. The commands are to persevere. The commands are to endure. And so when you decide, or you see Christians decide, I'm not persevering, I'm not enduring, I'm not going to go through this, I'm going to give up the fight, and I'm just going to sit down the, the lazy boy couch until the rapture. If you or anyone decides that, you are in now in disobedience at that point. And guess what happens in disobedience? You're introducing the death principle into your life. And the death principle is a very slow thing. It could mean that you're physically going to die and you're speeding that process up. So like, for instance, if you start doing drugs or whatever, get hooked on drugs, you're going to kill yourself eventually, slowly but surely, you're killing yourself. So that's an easy one to spot. But the death principle sometimes doesn't even work like that. It works on your life. You introduce the death principle by disobedience. What starts happening is your relationships start dying. That's the first thing that goes, is your relationships. And people don't notice this, but they start losing relationships because of their attitude and they're not growing. And then what starts happening is, because of the lack of relationships, they start turning to things to soothe their pain, to soothe the isolation that's going on inside of them. And so they end up picking more destructive things that actually introduce more death principles into their life. This is why, like, during this coronavirus thing, massive problems with depression, massive problems nationwide with suicides and things of that nature, because they start turning to things that are actually going to kill them. Stephen? It's, uh, it's the book of James, and the, the first chapter, he, he talks about the death principle, and then he, he bookends the first chapter with chapter 5 and verse 20, and he's telling his believers, hey, look, if you start messing around, then the death principle will be introduced. And I'll just read it real quick. You, well, the death principle, you know, is Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. But we usually use that for, like, salvation, right? But that's an overall principle. Wages of sin will kill a believer physically. Some have fallen asleep because they messed around with the Lord's Supper, right? How about Ananias and Sapphira? They believers or unbelievers? What do you think the Calvinists say? Unbelievers. What does the Bible say? You're going to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven, but they lost rewards. How about the Corinth? Church guys. Messing around, carnal, worldly. You going to see them in heaven? Yep. Because their eternal security is secure in the Messiah by belief. That's right. You'll be here with me. And most people don't think Saul was saved, but he is saved. Where was the prophet Samuel at when he said, you're going to be with me tomorrow? He was in the Abra Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is where righteous go. And Saul was going to Abraham's bosom. Saul was a believer. A lot of people that Calvinists have told you that are not believers, you're going to be surprised when you get to heaven because they are believers, but they were just knuckleheads. That's all they were. Saul, Saul believed in Yahweh, there's no doubt about it, but he's a knucklehead. He went to a witch, he did all kinds of crazy things pursued David? He's an idiot. 
But he's going to lose rewards for that. But will we see Saul in heaven? Of course we are. He believed in Yahweh. If I can find this, Stephen, hold on, hold on, hold on. There we go. The death principle, if you go real down in chapter 1, he'll actually explain it. Uh, let's see, where we're at. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who what? Endures temptation. Because that person is going to be blessed for enduring temptation. If you don't endure temptation, you're not blessed. Okay? For when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life. So those believers who endure persecution, endure temptation, actually get the crown of life. Because why? They endure. So this is talking about rewards, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Oh, you only get a crown if you love him. The way you endure persecution is you have to love the Lord. Does every believer love the Lord? No. Are they saved? Yes. Do they love God? No. They like him, but they don't love him. Because if you love the Lord, the first thing you would do is what? If you love me, you would obey my commandments. And one of the commandments in persecution and trials is to endure. But if you say, I'm not going to endure, I'm going to pitch a fit right now, and I'm going to rebel and protest against what I'm going through, then you are now detaching in fellowship from the Lord. You're in disobedience, and you're not going to be rewarded for that. Let's continue on. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So the Calvinists need to understand that. But here's the death principle. Ready? But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Where does temptation come from? Your own desires. Now, can you be tempted from the outside? Yes, but it's your desires that give in to the temptation is what he's saying, right? Continue on here because you're going to see the death principle. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Notice the progression. I'm tempted, but I'm going to give in to the desire that I want to do something that I shouldn't be doing. Or I'm going to disobey the Lord in this area and do something I shouldn't be doing. So I conceive of that, and then that gives birth to a sin. So it, it conceives in my mind, and then I actually live it out or behave that way. Or I, it's a sin of omission or commission, either one. I actually do something. When you do something, obviously... If you watch this, if you conceive this and then you start thinking this way, planning it out, storing the whole thing and then plan and act it out. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Notice what it says. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So the idea that you're giving birth to a thing, there's a sin, it's birthed. But notice when it's full grown, then it brings death. You see that in the process? The sin will grow if it's not stopped. It's conceived. So the, the James is given a birthing illustration. You birth a baby. And he's saying once that, that sin is conceived, there it is. There's a baby. Now, if you keep feeding the baby, if you keep pushing through and allowing this to grow it eventually turn into a full adult. 
And when it's a full adult, the death principle will then wreak havoc in your life and somehow kill you physically. Now, how long that baby grows into a child, into adolescence, and in full grown is basically up to the sin that you're involved in. So, you can start small in sin, just to use as an example, and it may not kill you. But if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're going to let it grow. And then it grows to a point where it's unmanageable. It's an adult, and that thing will turn on you and then destroy you at some point in your life down the road. That's what James is trying to say, that death is not immediate when you start sinning. Most people take that as, well, I guess God approves of what I'm doing because he, he didn't hit me with a lightning bolt. I'm seeing no consequences for what I'm doing. And what he's doing is letting the sin grow inside of you. That is a consequence. And it's growing and growing and growing. And before you know it, it's too big for you to handle and you won't be able to manage it anymore. And then it will kill you. So the death principle is there, Stephen. So in the Calvinist mindset, that's an impossibility. Because no believer would get into a season of protracted sin for years after year after year after year, Stephen, and not repent at some point in time. You see the flaw in that? you got scriptures telling you, you know what, you can kill yourself. You can literally, physically kill yourself by the sin you get involved in. Some sins will get you quicker there than others. Can you die of depression? Yes, you can. You can die of depression. It will eventually, you'll want to commit suicide. Sin gives birth and conceives. And depression, depression, untreated over and over again, eventually gets the person down so bad they kill themselves. Or they overdose, or they do something like that, or they overdose on the sleeping meds, or whatever it is, and they kill themselves. And so, what you have to understand is Calvinism is not taking into account what really happens to Christians. It refuses to acknowledge that Christians struggle. It refuses to acknowledge that Christians can be tempted and get caught in the sin and be there for years. It refuses to acknowledge that a Christian who doesn't have any roots can be swayed by false doctrine. But yet, when I look at the scriptures, there's all kinds of warnings to, to us about going into false doctrine. And so when you ask the Calvinists, what are these warnings for? Well, they're just hypotheticals. It can't really happen. He's just giving hypotheticals. Oh, then it's all hypothetical. So whatever Paul is warning about just can't even happen to me. So why should I even take Paul seriously? It's ridiculous. Anyway, any questions? i got to take a break. Yes, for the believer to stop the death principle, it's repentance. Okay, so is that different than confession? Yes. Please understand this. You can go before the Lord and confess your sin, and he says and promises what? He is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? But confession is different than repentance. And that's what Christians are not figuring out. They lump the two together. What you must do is not only confess your sin, but you have to be willing and turn away from your sin. Now, as a believer, you do possess the power to turn from sin.
Unbelievers have no power to repent. They can't turn from their sin. They have no Holy Spirit inside of them, and they're not born again. But believers can. Believers have the power, their will has been freed to obey either the sin nature or the new nature. And when they obey the new nature, the Holy Spirit empowers them to overcome. So, they'll repent if, if God changes their heart. They'll just auto, it, uh, To them, I would say, Loopy, it's an automatic change. It's just automatic. Whereas I'm telling you, the Bible says it's not automatic. You have to be told to repent and stop what you're doing because even if you confess your sins and get forgiveness, you still can be killing yourself at the same time, right? Because if you keep doing the activity, you can confess all you want and get forgiveness and you're good with God, but you're going to kill yourself over here on this side. And will God let you kill yourself? Yes, he will. He will let you kill yourself. Confession has to do with your, your theological standing with God. You're already one of his children, but because you've dirtied your feet, you need continual cleansing to keep your fellowship with him. So confession and, and for asking forgiveness has to do with fellowship or broken fellowship with the Lord. Okay, But I can still be in fellowship and then go back to the same behavior. Now, I'll break fellowship once I do the behavior, but the behavior is going to introduce the death principle in me. Now, if okay, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. I go back, I confess, I'm now clean now because I confess, and I stop. But then if I go back to it, the behavior is going to get me again. So the more I keep going back to it, the more the death principles that work in my life. So what does a person do? Confess, but then repent. How do you repent? Well, the first thing is you have to do a U-turn and stop the behavior. The behavior is what is physically killing you. Because every time you do the behavior, you're introducing the death principle into your body. And that's killing you slowly, and you don't realize it, but it is killing you. Have you ever noticed that people age differently? Do you know why? A lot of it has to do with what's going on in their head, what's going on in their emotions, what's going on in their body. So their, their spiritual problems are affecting their physical body. And it's getting ran down because of the fight and the struggle, the spiritual dilemma that they're having. And you can see it on their face, right? They look a lot older than their age because something's going on inside of them. Have you noticed that some people are always sick? Always. Always. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we all have physical problems. But I've dealt along enough with some people that every time I turn around, they have a new thing going on in their body. And it's not because of age. It's because... They're not dealing with what I know they're having a problem with spiritually. And because of the anxiety and the stress of not dealing with that, it's now affecting them physically. Their immune system shuts down. The things that would normally not be detected starts popping up in their body. And all of a sudden they start getting sick constantly. And it's like, you're too young to be getting sick all this time. I get having the cold every once in a while, but every month you've got something going on? And then you look in their spiritual life, and the spiritual life will tell you there's a problem there. And the spiritual life is connected to the body, and it's affecting the body. They're introducing the death principle into their body, and it's making them sick because they won't deal with this. So, guess what? To be very consistent, the scripture says when you're sick, you're to do what? 
You can call on the elders and they will pray for you. But what does James say in this? Because I'm still in the book of James. Chapter 5. If any one of you among, among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. If anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And notice what he says. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. But then he throws this in. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Why would James throw that in all of a sudden? Why would he throw that in when someone's sick and says, you know what? If they go before the elders and this sickness is related to their sin, they need to confess that. They need to confess that to the elders of why they're sick. And then the healing will come. So in order to confess that, it implies repentance as well, that you're going to stop doing what you're doing because what you're doing is making you sick. So isn't that interesting that James, the same theme that James is talking about, the death principle being introduced all through the book of James. It's, it's amazing he carries the theme all the way to the end of chapter 5. And he says, if they're sick being brought before you, he's telling the pastors, make sure that if his sickness is related to sin, that you guys deal with the sin in the person. Because the sin is making him sick. And there's a one-to-one -one correspondence in that. And then he ends the book. Check this out, how he ends the book. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Physical death. You helping other believers get out of the sin that they're in, he says, what does what? Saves them from physical death. He's not talking about eternal life because you can't lose your eternal life. He's talking about losing your physical life because of sin, if that makes sense. And again, that's probably more than what you wanted to hear, but understand that Calvinism will not interpret James like that. They're saying, well, you either are saved or you're not. And if you're having problems with sin in your life, then you're not persevering, and so you're not saved. Do you understand that the Calvinists and the Arminian are making the same argument, just in different ways? A Calvinist is the same as an Arminianist. Arminius says, if you commit sin, then you're going to lose your salvation. That's why you have all these churches that are going to the, the altar every week, getting saved over and over again, right? But the Calvinist is making the same mistake. They're just saying it a different way. Well, if you don't persevere and you get into sin, you probably weren't saved to begin with. They're saying the same thing. Nope. Nope. What James is saying, if, if any one of you are sick and decide to call upon the elders for prayer, for God to heal you, you come to the elders, and the elders know that, hey, this guy is a loser, he's robbing banks, and he hasn't stopped in ages. That's probably why he's sick. Well, if you come before the elders and want prayer, the elders are supposed to hold you accountable and say, we're not praying for you until you stop robbing banks, Dennis, because your sickness is probably related to you robbing banks. You keep tripping up and spraining your ankle every time you run out of first interstate. Or something like that. So it's only in that context, Dennis, not... Hey, you send your confession. Uh, it's when you call on the elders and want prayer for your healing specifically. Now, there have been a few cases where we know 
what the person's up to. There have been. The majority of them are not like that. The majority of people we talk to that I've seen are usually legitimate, sick, and, you know, they haven't, it's not they're committing sin. But have there been? Yeah, there's a few. And James is reserving that out. That's part of your questioning on the person is, what are you involved in, man? So it's in that context, if that makes sense. And that's why it's a one-to-one correspondence. Don. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. That's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. So when Carther says he's only 98% sure he's saved, what Don was saying is a good statement, that really what he's saying, he's 98% sure of what he believes. Because how are you saved? By belief. So MacArthur has 98% belief. Let me ask you this question. I know we're going to take a break, but let me me ask this question, and you guys go take a break. I'll come back. When you believe in Jesus, what are you believing in him for? Ah, Carol, the theologian. Wow, you got that right off. Did you hear what Carol said? Most pastors can't say what she just said. If I ask you, what are you believing in Jesus for? Could you answer with the way he answered people? What did Jesus say about him? Believe in me and I will do what? He will give you eternal life. Wait a second. I want you to catch this phrase. Believe in me and I will give you everlasting life. What am I believing Jesus for then? Everlasting life. If I'm believing in everlasting life, I believe in Jesus that he promises to give me, if I believe in him, everlasting life, what does that imply? What does everlasting life imply? You can't lose everlasting life once he gives it to you. For you to doubt whether or not he gives you everlasting life I just wonder about that. Can you believe in Jesus and not believe in his promise to give you everlasting life? I want you to leave it at that thought. Go go grab some coffee. We'll come back. What I'm, I'm trying to point out here about make sure when you understand what the Messiah is saying, he's implying in The promise is that if you believe in me, I will promise you eternal life, which means and implies eternal security. Here's my question. What if you do not believe in eternal security? What if you don't? You believe in Jesus, but you don't believe that he can promise you eternal life and give that to you, and that can't be revoked. What if you believe you can lose eternal life? That's what I would imagine. Because Christ in, in the promise of salvation is giving you and I a promise. He's promising that I will give you eternal life one day. Now it starts in our hearts obviously once we we're saved. But if, what, what I'm talking about eternal life in the bigger sense is you're going to have a new glorified body. You're going to be in the kingdom. You're going to be in eternity. 
And that's the eternal life he's referring to. Now, the abundant life can here start now, and it does for some people that get saved and they get on that track. There's also people who don't want to start the, the abundant life and they refuse that abundant life. But it doesn't take away the promise. The promise is Messiah, Jesus is telling you, you have eternal life and it can never be taken away from you. So therefore, if you disbelieve, I don't believe him for that promise. Then what's the problem? What if the person says, look, I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins, was buried, rose on the third day, but I don't believe he gives eternal life. You have to persevere to the end to get eternal life. You have to prove your salvation through works. You have to endure to the end. And then maybe on your deathbed, you might be a little sure that you might have eternal life. What's happening here with somebody who challenges Jesus' promise? Is that a different Jesus? If you don't believe Jesus can give you eternal life, can you be saved? He says, no. Believe in me in my the promise that I will give eternal life. But if you do not believe in my promise of eternal life, you can't be saved because you're not believing in the promise. This is what we're believing Jesus for. And believing that removes us from condemnation. Why? Why did it would given us eternal life? How is eternal life given by the Messiah? How come he has the authority to give that life? And why are we not under condemnation? Because what's implied in the giving and the promise of the eternal life? How does one get that? Belief. Belief in what though? What he's given you eternal life, but what is it what does he have to do to make sure he can give you eternal life? He has to pay your sin penalty on the cross, which he will do, right? And therefore, the implication is, I'm going to do the work of the Father. I'm going to accomplish redemption through the cross by me dying, bearing, being buried, and rising from the third day, which makes my promise valid of eternal life. I can give eternal life because I paid for your sins and I can remove condemnation for you, but you have to believe I can give you eternal life. You see, there could be a problem with some people in their understanding of salvation and what it can lead into. You have to incorporate the belief that Jesus can give eternal life. Now I say that and you probably say, I believe that. Okay, good. Great, but there's a bunch of Christians who doubt that based on their works. And if you're doubting that he can give eternal life based on your works, then what system are you running in? Because you're not running on his. You're running on someone else's. Uh, in that passage, what Paul is referring to is an eschatological reality that it's not discounting that the person is responsible for their growth. But what he is saying is, regardless of how the person grows, what is the end result of what you get for being saved? What's the third part of salvation? Glorification. That's what he's referring to in that passage. So he's moving down the eschatological highway down to the future and say he will complete it, and the completion is glorification where the person receives a new body. Every believer gets that. 
Every believer. And so that's what promised to everybody. So that's how he finishes the work he started in us. So for Cal, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, well, let's, not talk, let's talk about Catholics. Catholics believe in a works-based salvation. They say they believe in Jesus, but Catholics don't believe in his promise of eternal life because they have to secure their eternal life through works. So there would be a classic case in point. Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that Jesus gives eternal life because they believe they have to keep parts of the Mosaic Law in order to secure their salvation. That's why we call it a cult. Okay? And I'm telling you, the Calvinists, when we're studying Cal, are getting very close to the line because they believe they get eternal life if they persevere to the end. Well, then what are you basing eternal life on? Jesus' promise or your good works? They'll never say that, but the implications are pretty obvious. I think it's pretty obvious to everybody here that if you your perseverance is based on your works, then you're not believing for Jesus for eternal life. You're believing Jesus for temporary life. Temporary life. And then you have to fix the end and make sure you, you persevere to the end to get that eternal life. Then it's on you then. And that's why John MacArthur will say he's 98% sure he's saved. Because he doesn't know if he's going to persevere to the end. And if he doesn't persevere to the end, it proves he wasn't saved and it proves that he doesn't have eternal life. Bingo. It's totally an inconsistent system with what the scriptures teach. Question, real simple. Because you believe in Jesus, do you believe he's going to give you eternal life? And that never can be taken away from you. Right? They don't. Yes, which is another problem. It's over and over. Yes. So like the Catholics re-sacrifice Christ on their altar. The Assembly of God believe you can lose your salvation. It, again, they're not basing it on Jesus' promise. They're basing it on if they're a Christian by doing good works. It's, it's a, the Arminian makes the same mistake as the Calvinists, where they get into works-based. Calvinists prove through works that they're saved. Arminians say... Your works define whether you're a believer or not and whether you lose salvation. Both ends don't trust in the promise of eternal life. I know that sounds simple, but I want you to think about it. You go outside of the circle and you start talking to believers. Ask a believer, do you believe Jesus gives eternal life? Especially if they're a Calvinist. And see what they say. I'll be curious to hear what they say because their system doesn't allow it. And if you don't believe that Jesus can give eternal life, then I don't know what you're believing in Jesus for. So you're saying they would blame God, per se? No, they would say, you're just never saved, Alan. Because if you were saved, all these things would be working in you, and you shouldn't fail. You shouldn't apostatize, because if you're truly saved, you would never do that. And so it's like a... So, Alan, it's like an argument that you can't even criticize. It's like, well, you're just not saved. Well, then we can't even have a dialogue at this point. So at the end of the day, the biblical principle teaches the believer is responsible for their sanctification in cooperation with God. 
God gives the believer the tools to grow and learn. And if the believer yields to the Holy Spirit, if the believer cooperates with the Holy Spirit and doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit, then the believer and the Holy Spirit can start working together on sanctification. But the believer has to yield. If the believer will not yield, the Holy Spirit will not work in them. He refuses to work in anyone who refuses to yield in any area of their life. And so, that's where the responsibility comes for the believer. Any other questions before we depart? Dennis, do you know what the text that was? Well, I'm assuming uh, what Isaiah is talking about, that, that Yahweh makes salvation available to anybody. It's available. In a, you know, if he's using the metaphor of a store, house, so to speak, that, that he has plenty of it. You, it's, it's available to all. And I think that's what probably Isaiah is trying to refer to, that it's not like the Calvinists say, where it's just, no, it's only for a few people, not other people. The storehouse is plenty. And there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that would actually prove that to be true. Paul will say that God wants all to be saved. He commands all to be saved. The salvation of the atonement is for everybody, but not everybody takes it. Not everybody believes. Okay, any other questions? Then. Oh, no, no. Armenian theology, not the Armenian church. Armenian theology. It's supposed to be the direct opposite of Calvinism, but it's actually very similar. They work on the same premise. They just come to different... Armenians believe you can lose salvation. It's not the church, Ar Armenian church. It's a theology. It was named after Arminius, Jacob Arminius. Homework. You ready for this homework? Just as David had mentioned that the Gospel of John is extremely unique, the Gospel of John, you will have statements all over it with Messiah saying, believe in me and I will give you eternal life. I mean, it's all over the Gospel of John. How come those kinds of statements are not per se in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Did you ever see those statements in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I wonder why. Gospel of John is written to who? Gentiles. To what? To prove that the Messiah is God in the flesh and gives eternal life. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will not see those phrases. Is salvation being offered in those Gospels? Yeah, but it's a little different. Christ is not adding to it, but his focus is different in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what I want you to do is, I want you to go through those Gospels, just skim through it, and see if you can see the same terminology in John, and even 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John. And what you will find is very interesting. And you got to tell me why those three Gospels don't include those words. Good luck on that one. That'll be fun. <laughs> Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode 
or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.